Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, October 8th, and this is the weekly market update. So I'm going to go to this format where I just do a couple minutes of uh, editorial or discussion and then get into the slide deck. Uh, I think the big thing to uh, talk about this week is the, um, the OPEC cuts, if you will. Uh, the OPEC plus uh, organization decided to cut the um, cut their production by 2 million barrels. It's not really a cut to production because the member states, uh, for the most part, were um, not producing up to their quota already by a, an amount of about three and a half million barrels a day. So as we've talked about before, you know, as we were coming out of the pandemic, OPEC was adding to the amount production quotas um, starting back like six or eight months ago, adding like a half a million barrels a day to the quotas so that member states could, you know, increase their production. But the problem is, is that most of them, with the exception probably of the Saudis and Emirates and maybe Kuwait, uh, weren't able to take advantage of that. So we had this, this uh, news being put out or promulgated that, you know, production quotas were going up, but the production, actual production wasn't happening. So this to me Yes, it's positive for the oil markets in the sense of, you know, when I look at these markets, as I've said before, I think in the short, medium term, they're mostly driven by liquidity and sentiment. And I think we're starting to see a sentiment and perception change of the oil supply. Um, people really weren't paying attention to the fact that the Saudis were already underperform or the OPEC was already underperforming the quotas. And now this kind of really brings it to a head, though. It really um, brings it to uh, people having to think about it. And so, again, we have all these plates in the air. We've talked about this repeatedly, um, you know, all these different supply and demand dynamics that are at play and that are ebbing and flowing. But uh, I think, you know, we're going to talk about some things in subsequent slides that everything to me is skewing to less supply and uh, eventually more demand, or at least demand not falling as great as supply is going to fall. You know, the big narrative in the market is we're going to have a recession. It's going to be a bad recession. Um, and then the recency bias that people think about is back to 2008, or they think about 2020, what happened in the oil market when the pandemic shutdowns happened. And then they think to 2008, and then we're going to have this collapse and in the oil price, and we're going to, you know, go down to 40 or $30 a barrel. I'm not discounting that. The chances of that happening are not zero. Um, anything can happen, as we've said before, but I don't think they're as high as some people think because we're in a different market now. The underinvestment now, the decade of underinvestment has really caught up with us. And as I've said before, if your supply is dropping faster than demand's dropping, the price still goes up. And when it comes to demand, demand's not really dropping off as much as people think. Um, I think a lot of people in the West just focus on the West. They don't understand that the majority of the population of the world, especially in emerging markets, especially in places where energy is still demand is growing, are in Asia. And a lot of people ignore that to their detriment. You can't just focus on what's happening in the United States or in Europe. Okay, you have to look at the rest of the world and the six billion people that are in Asia and Africa and these places that are developing where energy is increasing. I mean, just saw last week, for example, you know, these people want energy security too, and they need energy to develop. That's kind of their, you know, mission. And so, you know, you see a place like Bangladesh with like 150 or 200 million people, the country had blackouts this week. Okay. 
uh, because of the lack of, uh, you know, power. So um, you can't ignore that. And so what I'm saying to you is, is that, you know, people ask me, you know, these things ebb and flow, sediment in the markets, liquidity in the markets, the overall market drops, most stocks are going to be weak. We've talked about this a hundred times, but the thing I've always been watching is inventories. Inventories continue to shrink. And we'll talk about that. So that's what I look at because it's inevitable that the, the, the world is based on, um, you know, this hydrocarbon energy system that we've created uh, over the last hundred years and to replace it. I'm not saying it can't be replaced, but it can't happen in a short time frame. You know, somebody put up a uh, slide on Twitter this week, I believe. And I don't know if the numbers are exactly correct, but it gives you a sense. You know, we've probably spent in the last 20 years worldwide, something like three to $4 trillion on renewables. And our use of fossil fuels decreased from 82% of the energy mix to 81. And so that would indicate to me that we'd have to spend, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars that we don't have if we want to do this transition in the way that's being advertised by the political class and, you know, think tankers and all this other thing. So, um, you know, I'm looking at, you saw what happened after these cuts were made. I think more could come. Uh, you know, we're in a situation now where, you know, even the Saudis, you know, they're trying to build this, MBS has these visions of building this $500 billion city in the desert in the Emirates and these other people, you know, they understand they have a finite resource. So they're trying to do things so that they can have a post oil economy several generations from now. And, you know, that's not going to pay for itself. Um, the other argument is that, and I'll get into it when I show some more slides. I just wanted to touch on this. You know, I don't really know. I'm not privy to the what was discussed at the meeting. I would say it was a pretty important meeting. Uh, the two million barrels that came out, I think, surprised a lot of folks. A lot of people were looking for like a million, but it's two million. That's pretty significant. You know, if you're running, like we said before, you know, in these commodity markets, everything's at the margin. So. Um, if you have 100 million barrels of demand a day in the world and you basically say you're going to cut by one or two percent, you know, because remember, uh, they were already underproducing the quota, um, you know, that can materially affect the oil markets. And so that on top of the other things we're going to talk about or have been talking about, I think, give a bullish bias. Now, the the view is, is that, well, if oil prices increase too, too high, that the um, the uh, economy could be affected and we could go further into recession. So they're shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, this is, you know, I don't think oil prices are going to go to $150 a barrel based on this cut. We're going to have the spike in oil prices because of the policy decisions made by politicians, uh, by oil company executives, state oil companies under investing because of market signals on price that were given to them. Uh, because of what happened with the shale revolution driving prices down because of the zeitgeist that's currently uh, manifested itself sp specifically in the West to demonize hydrocarbons, all the things we've talked about in the past. Okay, let's get into the slides, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute because I want to point out something that kind of um, plays into this a little bit. Uh, hold on a second.
Okay. All right. Weekly market update for Saturday, October 1st. Again, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not an investment advisor. I am not uh, qualified or allowed to give you personal investment advice. Uh, people do ask me for that occasionally. I can't do it. I can just talk in generalities. If you subscribe to the newsletter, I can tell you what I'm doing in my portfolio uh, and where I think some opportunities are. So that's uh, available also. But, uh, you know, this do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. All right. So getting back, uh, I meant to put CNBC. Uh, anyways, a CNBC journalist, uh, I think her name is Hadley Gamble. Uh, she covers uh, energy markets. Um, this was the post announcement um, press conference, and I'll put a link to it. I, I I need to still figure out the technicalities how I can play these videos while I'm talk, you know, while I'm on. Because sometimes if you don't hit the right button, you can't hear anything. Anyways, I'll put a link to it. But I think it's interesting because it goes back to something I've talked about before that I think is a long term thing that we need to look at vis-a-vis -vis energy. And that is that um, the world's changing. Um, if you can't see that, you just see, you know, I started talking about that and some people maybe can't wrap their head around it, but the old world order of the United States dictating to the rest of the world what's going to happen, the unipolar um, Anglo-American hegemon, that's crumbling before our eyes. This is another example in my view. This is my opinion. Um, do I want to see that happen? Absolutely. I'm absolutely for a multipolar world. I'm tired of the United States and what it does around the world. And you, you know, you can hit me up in the in the in the comments. Uh, I, I'm happy to have that debate uh, about. Uh, you know, I'm still waiting for the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, I'm still, you know, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the Kennedy assassination, the USS Liberty, you know, the USS Maine, you know, all of these things, Pearl Harbor. You know, all of these things, 9-11, you know, I mean, it's just too sketchy. And all these things, you know, to get us into these wars and for us to go around and dictate to the rest of the world what to do, you know, this rules-based order that we have, you know, uh, put onto the rest of the world, which basically no one understands what it really is except for anything that benefits the United States, everybody else has to do. Those are the rules. And so I could get into all kinds of side things. I'm not going to do that in this video, but that's my view. Uh, and the rest of the world's tired of it too. And I've talked about that. You know, these countries are grown up now. They, and they see that the United States is a paper tiger. There's no leadership here. Uh, there's no, there's exhausted, uh, you know, lack of out of the box thinking in Europe and the United States. It's just trying to ram the same policy unipolar the united states you know anglo-american hegemon you know you do what we say or else and you know people have, are throwing off that yoke and i think this is part of it and what's funny is this this reporter you know she has access she knows all these people and uh, she goes on her little karen rant here about uh, let me just read this uh, tweet here OPEC chiefs clash with usa journalists over huge cuts to oil production she accused the organization of trying to quote hold the world hostage, unquote. And the announced production cuts were, quote, an aggressive move, unquote. Saudi energy minister, uh, I don't remember his name, but he responds to her on this video very calmly. 
uh, first he says that these are, you know, kind of laughs a little bit. Chugs is kind of provocative. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, he goes on and says, show me where is the act of belligerence, period, unquote. And so um, I don't know why they cut this. I mean, they want higher oil prices because they want money. Okay. Uh, I would suggest that's probably the main reason. Um, yeah. And OPEC plus means Russia's part of this. Okay. Russia has input into this. And so immediately you see the reaction in the United States, right? Um, Senator Grassley, the no OPEC bill, we're going to sanction uh, these countries. We're going to, the, the playbook comes out again. You're not doing what we want you to do. And so, you know, we've been allied with the, with the, with the House of Saud for 60, 70 years. And so now they're not doing what we want them to do, what's in our near-term benefit or these current administration's benefit. And so we're going to start threatening everybody. Well, people, people realize that the United States is a paper tiger. What are you going to do? Put sanctions on us? Are, is it, are people paying attention to what's going on? Okay. Um, India, China, Brazil, these people, when they had the recent uh, vote at the uh, United Nations, they didn't, they abstained. That's as good as saying they didn't agree with, with, the, uh, with the proposition that was being put forward to you know, and then this, you know, idea of kicking certain countries off the Security Council and things like, you know, this is, we have a rogue, we have a rogue government. That's not just this administration. It's the last, you know, half dozen administrations, at least, or even going further back. The unipolar world where the U.S. dictates what you will do or else is crumbling. And so you get these people like this come out and do this Karen thing. Well, oil prices are high in the United States, and, in, and we have this energy situation, and what are you doing? They're, go back to, again, the Charlie Munger quote, okay? People are going to act in their own self-interest. If you want to know why people do make the decisions they want to do, look at how it benefits them. What's their interest, okay? So, so what, what, what is, why, would, why would the Saudis open up the taps now, okay? Um, MBS is a different leader, okay? He sees where things are going, okay? People in OPEC see where things are going, okay? And, uh, you know, don't be surprised in the next year or two if you don't see the Saudis join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Make a bid to join the BRICS, okay? This is what's happening because that opens up more possibilities for them instead of just being a vassal state of the United States. And so the Karen stuff comes out. You should listen to this because the snotty little attitude that this person has, she has no clue what's really going on. So what if they're trying to hurt the United States? What can the United States do to Saudi Arabia? Well, we're not going to sell them any more, allow Boeing to send them any more, sell them any more jets. We're going to come up with this NOPEC thing. We're going to bring antitrust situation. You know, OPEC controls production of about 47 million barrels a day of world oil production. Okay. I, you know, you need to really think about what happened during the, you know, Arab-Israeli war when they had the oil embargo from the OPEC countries, the Arab countries, what happened to oil prices. You know, when you need energy and you don't have energy, I hate to say this, but the person that, you know, pays the piper calls the tune. And they, the, the Saudi oil minister kicked it over to the OPEC minister and he said, listen, uh, energy security has a price. Again, we're back to that same term, energy security. So poor decisions, short-term thinking in the U.S., ridiculous policy decisions around 
climate change and um, uh, this this transition to whatever they're trying to transition to zero carbon. Okay, this is what you wanted. I mean, they're lucky I'm not sitting there. I would have said, well, this is an opportunity for you to go full full whole hog in your energy transition. That's that's what I would say. And the problem is, is that you know um, all these bad decisions then. When, when uh, energy prices, because there's a lack of investment, people can see what's going on, okay? Uh, this is what they sell, oil. They're self-interested in selling oil for as high as they can get it, as price they can get, and have a balance such that they get a high enough price to meet their internal um, budgetary means and what they're trying to do, and still not have it go high enough to destroy demand. That's what they do. And there's not much, you know, just think about it. Three or four years ago, Russia and Saudi Arabia were in a were in a production war where prices crashed. Do you remember that? Okay, Trump called them up, and they, you know, that that was the that was the double clutch that we had when we first became bullish on oil. If my long term listeners remember, we were bullish on oil, and then Trump went over there and did a double clutch and got the Saudis to um, basically get into a, a a war with Russia on price. The price collapsed. If you remember, that was just four years ago. Now we're on the opposite end of this. So energy, this goes back to, you know, I'm jumping around a little bit. But this goes back to what we've talked about before. If you don't have energy security, if you don't have secure um, energy, then if you don't have a realistic and long-term energy policy and plan in place in your country, this is what you're sub subject to. And so you can send your Karens out, but you, they responded very simply. They don't care. You're going to pay. That's it. What are you going to do about it? Not sell us any more Boeing airliners? Okay. I, I, I don't think that'll happen. You don't want to sell us any more weapons? We'll buy the weapons from Russia. We'll buy the rep weapons from China. There, this is a different world now, guys. This is not a world where the Anglo-American uh, hegemon can go around and intimidate everybody. You want, to, you want to cut us off from SWIFT? You want to impose financial sanctions? They're talking about doing sanctions on some of these countries now. This is going to this is going to expedite the transition to this multipolar world, to the multipolar financial world. That's my opinion. So I think this is very important. This is just another brick in the wall for that thesis. Is it actionable right now? Yes, energy is going to be more expensive going forward. That's it. Stay long energy. That's my advice. Here we go. You know, here's your inventories. Uh, I put these up whenever I see them, people post them. Um, so you have, you know, various years here, 2019, 21, 22, then the five-year average in the band of the, um, in that average. And look where we're at. And we're still declining. This is crude oil, including the SPR, plus gasoline and distillates. What's that tell you? Supply is going down. As long as supply is decreasing, the price is going to, you know, unless you have this Great Depression 2.0 where demand like drops off, like, you know, remember, I keep pointing back to this, you know, if the world's at, you know, pre-pandemic 98, 99, whatever it was, million barrels a day, and we locked the entire world down, we only dropped production, we only dropped demand by 8 million barrels, it dropped to like 89 or 90 million barrels a day. I mean, I don't see them locking down the world again. Okay, so even if you have a recession, and I've pointed this out in other slides, even over the last 50 or 60 years, there's only been a couple times, notwithstanding the um, pandemic, where oil demand has actually decreased, like only a couple 
two or three years out of the last 50. Okay, it's a steady increase because why? The ascension of man, because all those billions of people in Asia, okay? If you're just focusing on what's happening in the U.S., you're going to miss what, what the big trend is when it comes to this energy, okay? And they're not interested in having a zero-carbon economy. They're interested in accelerating the wealth in their countries, getting people's standard of living up. And the quickest, fastest way to do that is to do what we did, use hydrocarbons. It's that simple. Um, does that mean that they're not putting, you know, rebuildables up? Yeah, they're putting rebuildables up. It's not going to be, you know, this idea that oil demand is just going to disappear over time. That, that's now the narrative again, right? Well, oil demand is going to slowly but surely, these are stranded assets. There's no reason to invest. This is part of the problem of what's going to exacerbate this energy crisis. But here it is. This is, you know, here in the U.S. This is what I focus on. As long as I continue to see this, uh, I don't know why you would, you know, if prices drop for some of these energy stocks because people, you know, the sentiment changes short term and you get a sell-off. I mean, I think you got to get long, right? You got to, you got to, you got to top up. Here's another example: jet fuel. Okay, well below the five-year range. So a lot of these products. are well below their five-year average. And we're supposedly in a, you know, recession in, you know, definitely in a recession, if not depression in Europe. I saw a report this week that some people were forecasting in Germany, a 10% decline in GDP. 10% decline in GDP. And we'll talk about what's happening in the UK. Um, these are like depressionary numbers. Uh, this is going to get ugly. So, but anyways... But, the, the, but supply is still dropping. Why? During the uh, pandemic, we or pandemic, we shut down, you know, five percent of U.S. refining ca capability. Now, there, expansions go on. It's not like you know this. This it's kind of a canard to say that there's been no new refineries. Yeah, there's not been a greenfield refinery. I think there's one small one up in uh, Superior, Wisconsin, but I think it was after. They had a fire that destroyed the previous one. But anyways, so suffice to say, you know, these, these companies do do additions and stuff to increase, you know, slightly uh, their run rates. But overall, refining capacity in the U.S. is down. So if demand is still there, then the refining has to happen somewhere. And then you have to ship this stuff around. And there's, you know, not necessarily enough to go around. And so you see, you know, you see uh, this type of situation. And supposedly, you know, the U.S. is in a, in a recession or close to being in a recession. Europe's definitely in a recession or depression. And China still has the uh, uh, pan or COVID lockdowns going on. So these are major um, demand uh, declines or, or restrictions or pullbacks. And yet we still see supply. So what happens when these things come back? That's the problem. That's the thing that you really need to be focusing on. If you already have inventories coming down and we, you know, eventually these things are going to turn around, right? These negative uh, demand drivers turn around at some point and, uh, and that's how you get to $200 a barrel oil. So here's um, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum uh, links to these articles in the show notes below. If you're curious to read this, you know, I just take snippets. I don't want to skew your view. So feel free to go look at the articles yourself. 
But uh, anyways, uh, this was a Zero Hedge article. It said, world risks living with oil shortage for a while, warns Occidental CEO. Again, you have to take this for what it's worth. This is a CEO of an oil company, so they're talking their book possibly. But it lines up with a lot of things we've said. So from the article, Buffett's aggressive buying of Occidental comes as CEO Vicky Holub warned that a massive gap between supply and demand for oil had been masked by historical releases of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve under the Biden administration. Bingo, that's what we've been saying. And that's finite, guys. That's a major, you know, you talk about a 2 million barrel a day um, uh, drop in the quota for OPEC. And then, you know, you have this basically anywhere from 800,000, a million barrels a day being released from the SPR, whatever it is, half million, it fluctuates, but suffice to say, you know, somewhere in that range. Um, and, you know, that is supposed to stop at the end of this month. This has all been done to hold oil prices down. Um, remember, it only take that's 1% of world demand being released every day. Okay. And this dumb stuff about, well, it's going to China. It's, well, guys, we, we don't have the, re, the different different crude you know, oil is fungible okay so if you put more crude onto the world market and it exceeds the, uh, the the demand price should go down right because it doesn't matter where it's where it gets refined we don't have the refining setups to like in many cases refine the oil that we produce in the Permian. It's light oil. So we ship that overseas we bring heavier crudes in that's what the refineries along the Gulf Coast are set up for. It's not like this is not a conspiracy against, you know, you see, you know, these some goofballs say, well, we're sending this oil to China. I mean, look, they're putting it on the world market. Like I said, if you can change the dynamic a percent or two, you can really affect the price on a commodity. So that that's what they've done. They've they've tried to put that million barrels a day for the last whatever it was six or eight months on the world market to try to hold down that price. Because I can tell you right now, without those SPR releases, oil would already be at $150 a barrel. And so this is what the CEO of Occidental is saying. So people are saying what we've been saying for many for many months, okay? We, 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 we know this. We understand how these commodity markets work. So here's what uh, she goes on to say, quote, the lack of supply will continue to manifest itself as China starts to open up from COVID, unquote. Holub explained in an interview on the sidelines of the Energy Intelligence Forum in London, Bloomberg quoted. She warned the world is at risk of, quote, living with a shortage for a while, unquote, that will send prices higher, adding the lack of supply will become more evident in the first quarter of 2023. Now, I think the Biden administration did... Uh, say that they're going to continue to like 10 million barrels into November for releasing, but there's still a lot of oil left in the SPR. So I think if, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm not privy to what they're going to do. They haven't announced any more releases beyond that November timeframe, but that's another um, million barrels a day that could come off the world market. That would be 1% of world demand. That's enough to allow oil prices to go higher, substantially higher. So you have that. You have the fact that, you know, China, I mean, I really don't know what's going on in China. I'm not a China expert. Um, I don't know why in the face of what the rest of the world's doing, why they're continuing this lockdowns. That's Their lockdowns are resulting in uh, lowering of oil demand by about 2 million barrels a day. 
you add that. Now you're up, you take the SPR plus those two million, that's three million barrels. Um, you look at fuel or gas to oil switching in Europe and other places, won't be just Europe. I mean, I've talked about Pakistan, for example, cannot bid any LNG cargoes to their country because of the fact that they're being outbid by European uh, Europeans uh, that can just, you know, print as many euros as they want, well, for right now and outbid uh, these uh, emerging markets. So that, you know, if you have a business there, you're going to get a decent generator and you're going to run it, right? If you don't have, if you have blackouts because you know, there's not enough power in Pakistan. So people adapt and overcome, right? So uh, you're going to have some of that gas to oil switching, which could be anywhere from 300,000 barrels a day up to any, I've seen up to a million, a million and a half barrels a day. So you could add that. You could be in a situation by early next year where it's conceivable that you're going to be short 4 million barrels a day. If you're short 4 million barrels a day, let's say everything skews right in our, like we've, like I've just laid out. I mean, you're going to be at 200. You're going to get the, 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 the price will have to ration the demand at that point. And so you can see a quick move up to 150, $200 a barrel. Uh, yes. Then the economy would, uh, what would happen is the economy would contract a massively you'd go into a massive recession and oil prices would drop. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, right now, at the current oil prices, the companies in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter continue to pay down debt, continue to increase returns to shareholders. And so, you know, we're happy campers. Uh, it's happening just like we thought it would, like we've been talking about for over a year. Uh, since the bottom, you know, we were buying a lot of these companies and making the big bet, you know, at the, you know, negative $47 low, whenever that was a couple of years ago. So, um, basically I've, I'll continue to say, it, you know, um, I use these little quips because I want to stick in people's head, you know, the thing about heads, we win tails, we win more when we're talking about rebuildables and, and the fact that the hydrocarbon economy is not going away anytime soon, but we also, you know, want, want to say that, um, you know, uh, we're going to benefit from these, uh, from these poor decisions that are made. And so many of these things cannot be fixed very quickly. That's why you have, for example, you know, the Biden administration is really flailing around now. So if you didn't see in the news, I didn't put it up here on a slide, but I'll just mention this, you know, so they tried, they're trying to renegotiate the deal with Iran, but why would Iran be interested in helping the U.S. at this point? Okay. They are going full in on the SCO with the other countries and they've lived for 30 or 40 years with sanctions um, they can go another two or three or four years, you know, th this, this helps them. Okay. And so, um, they eventually, you know, they can sign deals with other countries, China and stuff, they'll get their oil out. So, I mean, and so you, you have the Biden administration, you know, they went over there and tried to get that deal. It seems like it fell apart, uh, the nuclear deal. And so now they've said they've issued a, a, a you know, told Chevron that they can recommence their operations in Venezuela. So this is, this is, this, there is no policy. It's just, you know, if somebody would tell me, well, there's policy to do this. Yes, there is. And I'm, there's an article I'm going to uh, give you, uh, point you to where a guy wrote a 35 page thing on real clear energy about all of the dumb decisions now that have cumulatively um, got us into this point, which is, I think, a great read to really understand. I mean, Everybody knows about Keystone pipelines and canceling offshore leases, but there has been a plethora of things behind the scenes that these administration, previous administrations have done to sub, submarine and to take out 
our energy security. So um, yeah, you're short of molecules. That's what I've said. That's another one of my quips. The world's short of, of molecules. And it's not hard to understand. You know, and to steal a quip from the Doomberg guys or people, you know, when physics and politics collide, physics wins every time. And that's why uh, you'll see in some subsequent slides, you know, where where this some of this is going, where some of the discussion is now manifesting. So this is again, uh, these things are actionable too. Stay long energy, buy on dips. You're in an energy bull market that's probably going to last this decade. If people want to know, well, how is all this actionable? What are you you're saying all this stuff, but what does it mean? Stay long energy until you see this massive investment bringing all this new supply on. In the cuckoo bird seat. If we have a big run up to 150 or 200, we, we're going to have to sell because then you will have a you will have a worldwide deep recession. Okay, because the world can't run on 150 or 200 dollar barrel oil. Then you go to cash and then wait to buy on the on the dip. But uh, that's down the line. So, anyways, let's go here. So what are some of the second and third order effects that are happening from this self inflicted energy? Um, tourniquet that's been put on by the uh, ruling class in Europe. Here it is. UK companies collapse at fastest rate since financial crisis as energy bills soar. So it's happening. It's happening like we discussed. Regular working people who I care about. I don't care about the elites. I don't care about their stupid foreign policy. I don't care about their McC McKinton, you know, Eurasian landmass and the great game. I don't care about any of that. Real people are being killed. Go back to that scene in the big short when the two guys running the uh, garage band hedge fund are high-fiving about all the money they made on their CD, selling their CDSs, and the Brad Pitt character turns around and starts scolding them about, you know, what's, what that really means. You know, every 1%, I don't know if this is true, but it makes sense. Every 1% decline in GDP results in 40,000 deaths. Why? Despair, uh, drug use, suicide depression, all these things, right? And so what's happening in the UK? This is not just the UK. This is all over. I just keep pointing these news snippets every week to bring it to your attention of what's really happening. UK companies are collapsing at the fastest rate since the height of the global financial crisis as surging energy bills drive thousands of firms out of business. People work at these places, real people, Regular people that have no really idea of how the financial markets work. And, you know, this is why I really like, I don't know if she's going to be able to make a, a, a difference, but I like this Georgia Maloney when she's talking in her speech about, you know, some of the things she's talking about and this thing about the financial speculators and these people that, are, you know, just the elites, the, what I call the pointy shoes, the Wall Street, you know, masters of the universe, they're going to continue to make money. I just saw that one of the trading houses, I think it was Cargill or something, they've had record profits this year trading on, you know, the dislocations in the agricultural markets. What about these regular people? Guy who owns a regular business with two or three people working there. Or they got a little heating business or, you know, cabinet making shop or whatever it is out of business because they can't afford the energy bills. What are they supposed to do? Everybody's just going to go on the dole. UK is bankrupt like every other Western country. The article continues, there were more than 5,600 insolvencies in England and Wales in the second quarter. That's just in one quarter. Highest level since 2009. That's right after the financial crisis, according to the Office for National Statistics. The sharp rise in energy bills was cited as the biggest problem for businesses. 
while difficulties paying debt, rising costs of raw materials, and supply chain disruptions also take their toll. You've seen on Twitter, you've seen on social media, the people burning their bill, uh, power bills, gas bills in Italy, Greece, the UK, that's spreading. You're going to see it on alternative media. They're not showing it on CNN or Fox. Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. We got a plan. Just trust us. Ursula Vandalin, Robert Hobbick, you know, Analia Baerbach, Olaf Schultz, Macron, they all have a big plan. They know what they're doing. This is not going to hold. The center's not going to hold, folks. Okay? And we're not even into the winter yet. This has an op. This is going to, I can't forecast what's going to happen, but I can tell you that there's going to be breaks in the political. Um, you look at a country like Hungary. You know, Hungary is part of the EU and NATO, but it doesn't have the EU as its currency. Okay? It has made a deal with Russia. It's going to get its gas. You have other governments are going to start doing this. You cannot sit there and have this continue to go on. Now, Liz Truss, she doesn't strike me as a particularly bright person, but she has said some things that probably should have been said 10 or 15 years ago. Increase the production of natural gas and oil in the North Sea. You know, accelerate the building of these uh, nuclear plants. Exploit the onshore shale gas reserves that the UK has. Now, I don't know if they can. I don't know if it's geologically possible, but that's stuff that should have been happening 10 years ago for energy security. But people didn't do that because it was easier politically to kowtow to, you know, 0.1% of very vocal environmentalists and just get your gas from, from Russia for cheap. So what was the, that was the easy decision you make politically. So I think, I think the, the things are going to swing back the other way as now, you know, people normally, normal, regular people are not really interested in politics because, it doesn't really, they're apathetic because they feel like it doesn't really affect their life, but it does now. And so I think you're going to see the protests increase. You're going to see repression by these governments increase. You're going to see more control of social media. You're going to see uh, people that are dissenters or people that try to talk the truth, kicked off social media, marginalized, but you can't do it anymore. You know, it's not like, you know, in this, in, watching these movies about East Germany where every typewriter in the country was registered so they could, you know, the Stasi could figure out if you were making flyers, anti-government flyers, they could trace the, trace the type back to your typewriter and throw you in prison. You know, you have Odyssey, you have Rumble, you have Gab, you have all these other alternative, unless they're going to shut down the internet, you can't do it. What are they going to do? Confiscate all the mimeograph machines? I mean, it's going to get out there. And people are going to thirst for this knowledge. People know that what's they're getting, there's the sheep are waking up. Let's put it this way, that they are being corralled into the slaughterhouse. This is interesting. This is what I've said before, you know, <laughs> circumstances have a tendency to, especially if you're a politician, you're mostly interested in staying in power. And so I think we'll start to see over time, some of the uh, shibboleths, some of the belief systems crumble for political expediency. You know, I've quipped before and like to bring it up that during the uh, 2008, lead up to 2008, the financial crisis, when oil prices in the, you know, got to like $147 a barrel, something like this, that even Nancy Pelosi was talking about um, resuming drilling offshore California. Now, it never happened because prices came down, but this is what you start to see because people like I said, the political class starts to get nervous that hey, if we don't start doing something or at least saying something, you know, remember there's other parties involved here. You know, you have 
not just the Green Party in Germany. There's all other parties. And there is a split in Germany. You know, people in Eastern Germany don't have the same standard of living as people in the West, even still. They have that legacy of, of understanding the BS from governments because they lived under the East German, you know, communist type situation. And so they have, that's why you see like a party like uh, AFD is a little bit has higher participation in Eastern parts of Germany. So I'm not saying you're going to get this big sweeping because the German system isn't really set up for that, <clears throat> but this is interesting. I think what you're starting to see. But the surest evidence that Europe's largest economy is veered into signs and wonders territory is that politicians are uttering with increasing frequency that dirtiest F word of all, fracking. Germany's energy crisis is a crisis of choice. That's correct. It is a crisis of choice. Or rather a crisis of two choices, the second following directly from the first. But Germany is as dependent as it is on foreign fuel only because of the first decision Berlin made, not to tap the country's substantial domestic gas reserves which by some estimates could satisfy much of Germany's gas demands for the next two decades. Berlin in 2017 all but banned on dubious safety grounds the fracking techniques that could reach most of Germany's gas. Now, I don't know, again, I'm not a geologist. I haven't studied. I know there's extensive amounts of shale gas in Europe. I do remember like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, even in Poland, they tried some of these techniques. It wasn't geologically perspective to, to unlock these things. But there are resources there. There are, you know, I want to say them re reserves because they haven't been proved up yet, but there are potential resources there. So it's just interesting that this would even be discussed. This is what starts to happen as the pol political class starts to, you know, um, freak out. You know, they said they're going to extend the life of two of the th last remaining three reactors in Germany till April. That's what Habeck said, I think, last week. So, you know, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see how much the common people are going to put up with. And, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, the other thing that I did see was that uh, Gazprom did say uh, this week also that one of the, there's actually four lines. There's two lines on each on uh, NS Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. And I guess whoever blew it up um, didn't hit one of the lines. And so, um, Gazprom said that it's possible that one of the Nord Stream 1 lines is still serviceable, which is interesting to me. So we'll see what happens politically. You know, that could be something like 25 billion cubic uh, meters of gas, which would be, you know, wouldn't solve the problem in Europe, but it would go a long way to um, helping them. And we'll see what happens over time during this winter. You know, uh, it's not just the winter and heating you know, it's the industry. This is what I was explaining to somebody else the other day. We were having lunch and they were like, you know, I took the napkin holder on the table. I said, this is the economy. Assume this napkin holder is the, is the you know, a country's economy, the world economy, what have you. And into this economy, to keep it at its level that it's running at currently with all the things that you take for granted, running water, hospital services, the space program, the server forms that let you play your little games on your phone, all these little things that are going on in the background, okay? The ability to commute from a bedroom community 40 miles to downtown for work on a freeway. All of these things require a set amount of continuous energy inputs into this system. This very complicated, advanced, um, complex system. 
And if you start pulling or reducing the energy inputs into that complex system, the complexity begins to break down into simpler things, which are going to reduce a lot of these things that are happening that you take for granted. And it started to dawn on this person. It's going to start dawning on these people in Europe, the, the regular working person. I'm sorry, we're closing the business down, this glass manufacturing plant, because we don't have enough energy to run it. You know, the energy costs are so high that the products are not competitive. Bye. And they'll never open that plant again. This is what happened in the U.S. And it wasn't because of energy. Just gutted out the entire industrial base of the country when we sent all the manufacturing overseas. And yeah, it benefited people on the coast. It benefited people with, you know, that went into the service economy and people that had advanced degrees. It didn't benefit blue collar workers. Like I've said before, I've driven through and worked in these communities in rural Rust Belt areas, which have, were decimated and have never recovered. The people have never recovered. Now, maybe everybody in Europe will just take that and, you know, they'll learn to code. I don't know what, what, what the plan is there. Uh, or maybe it's part of the, you know, depopulation agenda of the WEF. They're just useless eaters. We don't need them anyways. I don't know. But I would suggest to you that, uh, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you should do it over like decades, not in one swell fruit, one, you know, big move like we're doing, right, like it's happening now. Not that I'm suggesting, you know, this energy thing is some, you know, thought out policy. It's just how it's working. People are going to get mad. People are going to react. You already see the outlets that they're outletting their anger vis-a-vis -vis the ballot box already. And that's just the beginning. And I've, as I've said before, you're not going to make the changes that fix this at the ballot box because ultimately Georgia Maloney doesn't have the political capital to remove Italy from the Euro. That's what needs to happen. Completely cut the Euro off, go back to the Lira, devalue that currency, get a competitive advantage repudiate debt. That's not going to happen. It won't be allowed. People in Italy are, this, this stuff has to happen incrementally. The pain dial has to keep going up. And okay, it's like Liz Truss. She got, she, she's in there now. If you look at the polls in the UK, if they had an election right now, labor would sweep into power. Would they really change anything for the better? No, they start talking about nationalizing the power grid and all these dumb, more dumb policies that won't work. And you go back and forth, swinging back and forth between left and right, trying to get a solution. In the meantime, the standard of living goes down, goes down, goes down. And there's no, there's no real solutions because the solutions that you're trying to implement are the same failed solutions that you've been trying for the last 20 or 30 years or longer. Again, here's another article. Uh, Europe has energy resources. Do they have the will? Europe's energy resources are far from trivial, with coal reserves amounting to nearly 13% of the global total, sufficient to support current levels of production for nearly 300 years. According to the European Commission, technically recoverable shale gas resources in Europe amount to some 14 trillion cubic meters, between four and five times greater than the proven reserves of natural gas. In other words, the shale gas would be sufficient to support current levels of European gas production for 50 years. But yet they're doing nothing to exploit it because, you know, climate change. Here's a quote here. It is alarming that there are still parliamentarians who believe that more renewable energy is the solution. When this will only deepen the current crisis and make recovery still more difficult. Only the physically superior energy for fossil fuels is able to keep us out in this desperate situation. Indeed.
And so, uh, again, you know, I look at, you know, people in government, people enter government for one reason, you know, the two highest uh, areas of income, average income in the United States are around the Silicon Valley area. And of course, the suburbs and zip codes around Washington, D.C. You know, I went there, I don't know, a month, a couple months ago, and I was just shocked about driving out to the airport, all of the construction cranes around Washington, D.C. The government's a growth business. And all the slop that, in all the, you know, lobbying and all the f money that's there, you know, there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, grifting going on there. And so I like this uh, here. It's, uh, you know, Janet Yellen is Treasury Secretary. She's going to announce the first $1 billion Treasury loan for multilateral clean technology fund. And so this guy, Wall Street Silver, says this. A loan to help developing countries transition from fossil fuels to green energy. And he has the clown world emojis. Lots of, this is exactly how it is. I've been in this business a long time. This is exactly the app description. Lots of consultants, lots of Zoom meetings, a bunch of NGO activists funded and a bunch of invented numbers on their effectiveness. We won't get any of this loan money back. That's exactly right. And nothing will happen vis-a-vis -vis CO2 emissions. This is just a way for people to make money. And I explained this to somebody else the other day. This, this whole rebuildables thing, industry, is so large now and so entrenched in D.C. and in state capitals, it's not going away. There's hundreds of thousands of people, lawyers, engineers, lobbyists, all of these bug men type people that are now ensconced in, in this. And I don't, I don't say anything. You know, you, you know my views on it. I will... If you want me to build ice machines in Antarctica, I'm happy to do it if you pay me. I'm not a policymaker. I'm not the king, okay? I don't have any influence on that, okay? Um, but I see what's going on. I just chuckle because you, I did, I occasionally can sneak stuff in there. Like when I went to the solar conference, I was bringing up about the, the copper, impending shortages for copper with all of these manufacturers of inverters and transformers. They just looked at me like, uh, what are you talking about? You know, don't you understand this is a this is a boom we're in. Okay, well, you don't have the materials there, Chief, but you know, I don't say that, but just see if they understand if they have no inkling because it's happy days are here again. And so we're not gonna get rid of this, it's not gonna go away. The only way this ends is the wheels have to completely fall off so that you can't do it. The currency collapses, you got bigger problems than worrying about climate change. And I think eventually that happens, but you, you know, predicting that's very difficult. There's people that are perma bears that are constantly saying, you know, eventually, you know, the, the levels of debt, the levels of corruption, the levels of, you know, stupidity in the country, you know, is, uh, and, you know, all the other problems build on top of themselves. And then the whole thing just, you know, like I said, the wagon wheels just fall off and you just stop. And then, like I said, that's when you really have real changes. And uh, like I've said before, I, I wrote an article like five or six years ago on my website where I said that Social Security and Medicare will guarantee the political dissolution of the United States as a political entity. The, the unfunded liabilities are not payable, okay? And uh, people have known that, you know, Ron Paul used to spar with Ben Bernanke about that or Greenspan about that. And Greenspan said at one time, we have this thing called printing press. We will pay the benefits. I do not guarantee the value of those payments. So you know where this is going, but you can't predict what is the catalyst 
what is the you're, you're floating down this river towards Niagara Falls, but you really don't know where the falls are. You know they're there, you just don't know how far. Is it a hundred miles down river? Is it a mile down river? Is it two blocks down river? I don't know, but you can see the handwriting on the wall, and no no civilization gets out of this. And this is why the U.S. hegemony is collapsing. Also, you just can't. It's not sustainable. So. This is just, you know, everybody out there stealing as much money, getting their, getting as much as they can while it's there. And like I said before, it's not even worth trying to convince anybody because you're not going to convince somebody that this is a ridiculous thing to be doing if their livelihood depends on them not changing their mind. I mean, people are, <laughs> people are motivated by their self-interest. Again, we're back to self-interest again. And so this is the article. I haven't read all of it. I've just read the um, first few pages, but I'm going to put a link to it. It's like 35 pages. This guy gets into the whole deep down, all of the policies, all of the executive orders, all of the poor choices that have been made of why we have the energy issues. And it's all political. It's all political. All of these things could have been solved. You know, I go back to that, Whatever you think about Mr. Trump, I think it's so the schadenfreude that I get from watching him standing there at the UN telling the Germans not to do what they were doing by tying their energy security to Russia. And they sitting there laughing with these snotty little looks on their face. Well, are they laughing now? I mean, energy security is the basis of everything. Energy is a derivative of everything. If you don't have the energy inputs, you're in trouble. Are people figuring it out yet? And then you go back and look, how did we get here? Well, it's by political design. Mr. Biden, when he ran for president, went up to that 14-year-old girl and with that microphone. I'll never forget it. This is what he said. I promise you we will get rid of fossil fuels. What, what you don't believe him? The policies all indicate that. Now you want to know why you're in the position you're in. So for political expediency, they're running around because, you know, you're not really going to get rid of fossil fuels in a four-year presidential term, but they're going to, you know, do things to move us in that direction. And then the repercussions come because they're not thought out or people don't understand how things really work. And so now, you know, going to tell Chevron to go, you know, restart operations in Venezuela, go around and threaten OPEC, pass laws, you know, you know, shake our fists and, you know, send out our snotty little uh, regime reporters to, you know, like Hadley Gamble and, uh, you know, have her chastise the OPEC members. They don't care what she says. They don't care what the U.S. says. Have you ever seen, I've said this before to another person we're talking, I've said this before on these channels. Have you ever seen a U.S. president or a U.S. administration be rebuffed by OPEC or the Saudis? Like, I mean, I have never seen anything like this. You know, uh, this this relationship that we had with the Saudis for 70 years is seems broken. You know, when Mr. Biden went over there last time, I think it was a few months ago, that's when uh, OPEC made the ceremonial 100,000 barrel a day cut, if you remember. That was the result of the last visit. And he didn't pick up on the vibe, the, the administration. So here we are. Going on snippets from the article, the West has experienced its third energy crisis. The first in 1973 was caused by the near quintupling of the price of crude 
oil by Gulf oil producers in response to America's support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The second occurred at the end of the 70s when is Iran's Islamic revolution led to a more than doubling of oil prices. This again inflicted great economic hardship, but the policy response was far better. This time is different. The third energy crisis was not sparked by Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies or by Iranian ayatollahs. It was self-inflicted, a foreseeable outcome of policy choices made by the West. Germany's disaster, disastrous energy vendee, energy vendee, energy transition is basically what it means, that empowered Vladimir Putin to launch an energy war against Europe. Britain's self-regarding and self-destructive policy of, quote, powering past coal, coal, unquote, and its decision to ban fracking. And as Joseph Toomey shows in his powerful essay, President Biden's war on the American oil and gas industry. So these, uh, like I said, I'll put a link to it. I suggest you read it. Um, I've already started reading it. It's already kind of like made my eye, one of my, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know all about all of these undermining policies that we've engaged in. And so, you know, this is a policy. We have a plethora, we have an abundance of hydrocarbons in the world. The West has decided that that's, we're going to net zero. I don't know how you overthrow this. You see the results, poverty, suffering. We don't even seen it all yet. Is this what you want? Is this what you voted for? Is this what you're in agreement with? I don't think the majority of the people are, but we'll see. That's where they're taking us. You heard Annalena Baerbach. She doesn't care what the German voter says. We're going to stand behind uh, Ukraine, regardless of the costs. Okay. We'll see. Getting back to copper, you know, I keep bringing this up. Uh, you're not going to have an energy transition that's going to be successful because you don't have the copper. And we keep talking about that. And eventually, you know, even with all this recessionary talk and all the things that are happening, I think the copper price is only down to $3.40 a pound. You know, it's not, where's the collapse? Maybe it's coming. Maybe as this, uh, you know, energy or interest rates start to bite and the economy continues to slow down, um, maybe we'll see this waterfall event. I don't know. But longer, medium and long term, you know, we got a problem. From the article, annual copper demand from green energy is set to increase by over 3 million, met, uh, million, ton, million metric tons per year during the course of this decade. Actually, I've seen estimates even higher. Just looking at electric vehicles, there is three times as much copper in one EV compared to an inter, uh, internal combustion engine. You know, you could go do your own exercise. If they're going to make 100 million EVs, how much copper per EV do the calculation? That's increased demand. And then you go out and look where are these mines coming from. Add to that the use of copper in EV charging stations and energy storage systems, and the demand picture only keeps on growing. Yes, and that's notwithstanding the demand that's coming from that largest population base that's emerging in Asia, just for electricity grids, air conditioners, transformers, all of that infrastructure that needs to go in, in places like Indonesia with 200 million people, the Philippines with almost 100 and something million people, um, Bangladesh, India, China's not done yet. So you go down the line, okay? So then you're going to add this additional demand of copper that is not there. 
uh, goes on a quote here. We have moved into a landscape of accelerated copper demand growth underpinned by the green energy transition, unquote. Quote, in 10 years time, 7.6 million to 11.3 million tons of new mine capacity will be required to fill the supply gap. But mining companies have been extremely sluggish in responding to this challenge. The recent drop in prices won't help, unquote. Copper demand from green end use sectors is set to more than double its share of total usage from 2020 to 2030. I've seen, you know, um, podcast where people kind of like put it try to you know you're like the largest one of the largest mines in the world's escondida and you would need seven or eight more of those in the next 10 years well who's developing these no one knows because they're not so that is why we talk about we try to break it down to something simple to remember heads we win tails we win more what does that really mean well the underinvestment in hydrocarbons that power our world heads we win because prices are going to be high in the meantime, on the other side, the transition, we don't have the materials ready to go to allow for this transition to lower hydrocarbon usage. And in a ironic twist of, you know, FU, you need the hydrocarbons to have the energy transition to, to undermine hydrocarbons. You see, it's, circular, it's a circular firing squad. So heads we win, tails we win more. You know, like I said before, Goring and Rosenzweig has forecasted incentive price on copper of $10 a pound or more to get people moving. It's not going to happen, folks. It's not that the materials aren't in the ground. They're there. No one's investing in them. You know, we have resources here in the U.S. There's big resources in mining. You know, I follow the mining industry. You know, do you know how many mines, you know, just arguing with people in Europe, they won't let mining advance there here in the U.S. it's difficult to advance so where are you going to do this at places like the DRC the rate capital of the world which is you know the places corrupt from <clears throat> east to west you have to pay bribes and have civil wars and cannibalism and all this weird stuff going on this is where you're going to get all the world's copper where you have child miners mining cobalt this is how you're going to get this energy transition I mean I just sit back and laugh people really haven't thought this through and so from, you know, forget about the political situation comments or my views on it or whatever, or my snide remarks. The bottom line is, this is the, this is the, this is the investment theme. This is the speculator's dream for the next 10 years. Again, going back to Soros, find the presumption, find the premise that is incorrect and bet against it. That's what we're doing. The bottom line is that if we want to have an energy transition, we need copper. It is vital. And judging from the level of physical inventories today, supply is already short of demand. Tails, we win more. This is interesting. I see this uh, layoffs are happening at uh, wind manufacturers. It says here, GE is cutting its U.S. onshore wind workforce by 20% and plans cuts in Europe and Asia, giving operating losses and steep drops in demand. Rival Siemens Gamesa, renewable energy, last week also said it planned to eliminate 2,900 jobs. So I don't really follow this as deeply anymore as I used to, but it seems like the shift is to solar because it seems to be faster and quicker and easier. And so that's where all the 
emphasis is. That's where the big build out is. I think a lot of this also has to do with the fact that you've really built out a lot of the prime locations for putting up windmills. So how much demand is there onshore? You can't just put them everywhere. They don't financially make sense if they're in areas where there's not a sufficient wind. And that's mostly in the center of the country. So they, they, they've got most of the prime locations locked up. And so, yes, there's demand for, you know, doing these repowers and stuff like that. But that's, you know, 10-year cycle. That's not enough to maintain the big boom that everybody was having. So that's why everybody's moving into solar now. Uh, because that's the new thing. Everybody's hanging a shingle out. So I thought this was interesting. Um, we'll see if this, uh, how this goes. But uh, again, you know, we continue, I, I continue to put these things up here. You know, my snide remarks notwithstanding, or, you know, some of my political views that people don't agree with, which is fine. I mean, I have my views, you have your views, but you can't get off the fact that when physics meets politics, physics is going to win every time. And so that's what we are focused on here. Um, again, we just uh, published the uh, October issue of the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. We again beat the uh, S&P 500. Uh, I think since I started tracking everything from January of 2020 to now, the S&P is uh, up like 10 or 15% and the portfolio is up like a, over 150%. Now it depends when you get in you know, people that have been with me a long time have done better. People, you know, you get in over this last three months and you come on board and you're like, well, nothing's happening. Well, it's like, things are not linear guys, you know? So we had this lull, we had this pullback because sediment had shifted away, you know, that we were going to have this great depression 2.0 and energy prices were going to collapse. Then we had, you know, sediment changes then. And we had this big rally last week in energy stocks. But like I point out in the newsletter, and I just say, you know, stay on track, like, like, in you know, going after the Death Star, man, stay on target, stay on target. You know, I mean, as long as inventories are declining, uh, it's irrelevant what happens with the price action in the short term, which is just noise in my view. Midterm and long term, we have a massively huge energy crisis that I think uh, most people don't understand. And I think that as the market comes to realize what we've been talking about, you know, repricing of these things is going to happen. You know, I've got a company in the portfolio that's generating so much cash, they laid out their policy. You know, if they get the debt down, which they did down to a certain level, they said they would return 25% of free cash flow to shareholders via buybacks and dividends. Then they laid it out. When we get to 50% of total debt, um, then we will increase the, or we get down to this other debt level, Not 50, we will go to 50% cash flow. And then we get down below this other, threshold level, which they're moving rapidly to, um, we're going to return 100% of free cash flow to shareholders. Not we're going to re return 75% and then go drill more. Not we're going to re return 50% and go buy our competitor. We're going to return 100% of free cash flow after capital expenditures to maintain production to shareholders. And that is starting to be, that is the theme across the industry. So don't expect this huge investment boom. Yes, we will see, uh, but then people, you know, I've talked about this before, you know, what about oil field services? They're still going to boom because the industry shrunk so much that the capital that's still going to come to it is going to be sufficient to cause a boom. And eventually, eventually prices will stay high long enough and then people will uh, begin drilling again. But I don't, that, that's, that's down the line. That's just not uh, something that's going to happen in the next month or two. So again, we stay long energy. 
um, and the areas around energy. Yes, some special situations we've had in the portfolio that have worked out. And, you know, uh, some longer term investments that we're going to be adding that look good after this pullback. So run by, you know, good managements with good businesses. So uh, I think I feel pretty good about uh, the newsletter and the uh, portfolio. I think we've done a good job and uh, we'll continue to do that. So if you're interested, check it out in the show notes. Uh, that's it for this week, guys. We will talk to you next week. We've got three months, the big push. We're like 9,580 subscribers. If we can just 420 subscribers push through that 10,000 barrier, that would be like my goal for the rest of this year. Um, we're starting to get views now around high 4,000s per week, 5,000 people per week uh, viewing these videos. Uh, so if you like these videos, share, like, subscribe. Um, that helps, that helps my channel. Uh, so, um, and like I said, you know, you can subscribe to the newsletter. That's good too. But about 80% of the information I put in these videos is what's in the newsletter. I just don't give the names out here. So that's it. Um, thank you. And we'll talk to you next week.